we'd been looking at what it meant to be an imitator of God. And it began, as Paul says here in verse 2, to walk in love. But also, this is not only a walk of love, but this is a walk in light. And this is what we're going to see this morning. I've simply entitled this text, Walk as Children of Light. Walk as Children of Light. And let's look at this scripture here together, beginning in verse 7, reading through verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. The apostle says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. May he add his blessing to the reading of his wonderful word this morning. As we are making our way through a dark generation, a dark time, we know that light shines greatest when the darkness has become the darkest. And there is no doubt that we live in a generation that is embarking upon evil that is approved and applauded politically, relationally, and sadly, even within some churches. We live in a generation, beloved, that says that Elvis lives, but God is dead. What an unusual time. We live in a time where, as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 5.20, that evil is good and good is evil. That darkness is light and light is darkness. This is the generation that we have. It's a generation so confused that they think it's, it's okay to give condoms to children in public school, but that same legislation says that it's against the law to post the Ten Commandments publicly. The inmates are running the asylum, aren't they? This is the time that we see. It's a chaotic time. When people leave the standard of Scripture and they embrace what has become known as simply a mantra of a feel-good generation, if it feels so good, how can it be so wrong? A generation that is a slave to unbridled passion and unguarded pleasure and unbroken pride is a generation that has abandoned the Lordship of Christ and his gospel. Now listen, we know that in any generation that Christians find themselves always as a blessed minority in the majority of the tide that is against the gospel. But the concern and the passion, one of them, of my own heart, even this Lord's Day, is that these things are creeping into the local church and into Christian institutions. People are more con concerned about tone than they are about truth. They're concerned more of being 
loving than they are about loving the Word of God. Now listen, we serve a God of love, and we are to love our neighbors, we love ourselves. We are to live sacrificially to one another, especially as an example to a lost world within the body of Christ. That's important. But civility now has trumped orthodoxy. Morality has now been forged not out of the truth of God's word, but simply out of the feelings we have for our own individual proclivities. This is a dangerous slope that we are on. Charles Spurgeon, that great British pastor in the late 1800s, faced it in his day. It was known as the downgrade. He was concerned that worldly methodology was coming into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He presented that concern to the Baptist Union of his day. It was a concern that fell on deaf ears. He was a lone ranger as a voice in the wilderness, crying for repentance and revival and reformation to come to England once again. It was a day of tragedy and heartbreak for our blessed brother because he was voted out of the Baptist Union and it was his own brother, a fellow minister in the church at that time who led the charge against Charles and voted him out. It broke his heart. Some say it drove him to the depth of depression and despair. In fact, he ultimately died of that depression, of that gout that had troubled him of the soul. Spurgeon was vindicated because, as we saw coming out of the late 1800s, every major denomination in the United States and abroad went through abject liberalism and compromised its faith. Again, Spurgeon was concerned that a worldly methodology would breed an unorthodox or an unbiblical theology to justify its practices, and that's what we have today. Some people felt a few weeks ago when the Supreme Court passed and assumed a legislative mode rather than a judicial one and made gay marriage the rule of the land, the law of the land. And if I can remind you this morning that no judicial body ever has a right to trump a creation ordinance established by God himself. Man is not that powerful to do so. It's warmed my heart when Christians all across this land have not only spoken out biblically through social media and other avenues, but it's been wonderful to hear testimonies of entire county clerk boards and officers and even judges and county uh, officials locally in states saying that we are resigning out of love for our Lord Jesus Christ. We will not bring into the holy union of marriage that which is unholy. It is time for men and women of God to take that kind of stance once again. This is not a political issue. This is a biblical issue, my brothers and sisters. And it may mean the arrest of even some of us this next year. I, I love my friend Dr. R.C. Sproul, and when commenting on this this last week on his radio program, he was asked a question. They said, R.C., are you prepared to be arrested if you will not marry 
two homosexuals? And he said, absolutely, there is no other choice, is there? I joined that rank with my brother. If you hear of my arrest, please come visit me. Please call Pastor Ed and maybe he can get me released. Well, yeah, I stand corrected. He'll be with me in that same cell. You see, this is a time where faith must be evidenced in godly works. This last week, it broke my heart to see two Christian universities, Holt College and Belmont University, now change their statement of faith to accommodate same-sex marriage. You see, what this generation needs is true Christ-centered love. And as we said of others here, can I just reinforce that the gay community is not our enemy, they are our mission field. We want to see them come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior as we have. But this has also crept into the church. A friend of mine in Christian music, Don Francisco, who has written some beautiful Songs. He's a storyteller. He wrote that magnificent resurrection song, He's Alive, if you're familiar with that song. It's, it's a beautiful song. I can't help but listen to it and bring tears to my eyes and rejoicing to my heart for all that Jesus has done. But I wept for a different reason this last week because my brother and my friend put on his Facebook page that he no longer believes in the inerrancy and fallibility of inspiration of Scripture. This is a tremendous departure from the faith. The obvious question is, inerrancy, it means without error. Infallibility means it cannot lead to error, that it's true in everything that it represents. When the Scripture speaks of science or politics, when it speaks of human relationships and geography and in history, it is absolutely true, free from error in all of its parts. It is infallible, inerrant in the original autographs and the original documents. We know that Scripture is without error, that it is perfect, that it is true, that it cannot lead to error. Why? Because the author is perfect and true. It is not the product of human authors, Scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness and teaching. Thoroughly equipping the man of God for every good work. Why? Because all of Scripture is theonoustos, God-breathed. God breathed his word out of man. It is not the product of some 40-plus authors written down over a 1,500-year period, and then those words of human authors somehow infused with divine blessing. No, it is the very word of God. And so when we come to Scripture this morning, I want to remind you, as we pick our battles carefully in this world, the Lordship of Christ is worth dying for. The gospel is worth dying for. The nature of the Godhead is worth dying for, the Trinity. The authority of God's word is worth laying down our lives, and we see that throughout all of church history. Martin Luther, as he stood before that 
Roman court, as it were, under the guise of Pope Leo, he said, Sway my conscience by the truth of Scripture, but I will not be detoured. Here I stand. We need men like that again. It's the truth of Scripture that infused John the Baptist with such holy courage to speak to the politicians of his day and before King Herod, saying, Sir, that is not your wife, that is your brother's wife. Repent! And it cost him his life. Where are men like that? Where are men that are going to stand before presidents and not dance the Nashville two-step with them, but call them to repentance? This nation needs revival and reformation and renewal once again. And beloved, let it begin with us. Let it begin in each of our hearts because we love the Lord. Let it begin with a fresh obedience and return to Christ. And I believe this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5 to us this morning. He's calling us to walk differently. The gospel, listen to this, is always countercultural. It was never meant to be accepted as a pleasurable thing. He must increase, but we must decrease. We are to be in the world, but not of it. And there's the tension. And so, beloved, as we come this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, I want to encourage your hearts to live holy, to live faithfully before our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, light is a very important thing in Scripture. We see this in the Word of God. We know that Scripture is clear when it speaks of, of how even our God is portrayed. Psalm 27.1 says, God is our light in our salvation. Psalm, pardon me, Isaiah 60 verse 19 says, He is an everlasting light. Paul says in 1 Timothy that he dwells in inapproachable light. Psalm 119, 105 says that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In fact, in Isaiah 49, 6, Christ is called the light of the nations. In John 1, 9, the true light which enlightens every man was coming into the world, speaking of the Lord. And in John 8, 12, he is called the light of this world. For a believer to imitate God, therefore, he obviously must share and reflect and live in the light of God's word, in the light of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Scripture, the use of light has two aspects that I would like to, by way of introduction, draw your hearts to. Number one, intellectual. Number two, moral. You can go to that next slide, please. Thank you. In Scripture, the use of light has two aspects, intellectual and moral. Intellectually, it represents truth. When we say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, when we say that his word is truth, when our Lord said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. 
Intellectually, it represents truth. Morally, when we see light revealed in Scripture, it represents holiness. Holiness. To live in light as a Christian, then, means to live in truth, the truth of God's Word, and in holiness before our God. Be ye holy as I am holy, the Lord says. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, do not go back to a life of unholiness. Don't, don't go back to a life of those desires and passions before you knew Jesus. Press on, work out your salvation, Philippians 2, with fear and trembling. Be light to a darkened world. So to live in light, truth and holiness. To live in the dark, falsehood and evil. This is where we find ourselves this morning, beloved, in this great fifth chapter of Ephesians. Paul is exhorting us with strong but yet loving words to walk as children of light. Let's look at what it means to do that. Number one, remember your depravity. Remember your depravity. Look here with me in verses 7 to 8a. Paul says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. Notice he doesn't say you were in darkness. He says your entire being, you were darkness. This speaks of the fullness of the corruption of the depravity of man and the sinfulness of sin. But now you are light in the Lord. What's happened? Transformation. Regeneration. We once were in darkness, now we are in light. We once were slaves to sin, now we are slaves to righteousness. We once were headed to death, and now we have eternal life due to the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Complete transformation. We're darkness, now light in the Lord. In the Lord. This is not behavior modification. This is not a psychological transformation. This is not having your prejudices somehow curbed by political issues. No, this is spiritual transformation. Our beings were transformed. Paul says it this way. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. All the old things pass away and all things become new. Good news, isn't it? Complete transformation. But notice the warning he gives. Do not become partners with them. He's saying, remember your depravity. You once were in darkness, now you're in light. Don't partner with them. A couple of verses I would like to draw your hearts and minds to this morning. In Titus chapter 3 and in verse 3, here's this wonderful church on the island of Crete. It's in a terrible place. It's in a very wicked place, but Paul left Titus on this island of Crete to carry on the work of the gospel. He's encouraging him to strengthen the things that remain. This is hard slugging for the gospel. And mind you, it's hard slugging in Palm City as well. A beautiful community, a great city, postcard perfect, but yet a struggle for the gospel. We are in the world, but not of it. And there's a battle waging. And so he encourages 
these young believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. But notice he encourages them in Titus 3, 3 to remember their depravity. Why are we to live godly lives, holy lives in a very corrupt society? He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. That's my testimony. That's your testimony. Remember your depravity. So the apostle is saying, don't partner with them. Don't partner with them. Your most intimate alliances, your most valuable friendships are those are within the church, other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are to partner with. That's who we're to have our closest friendships with. If you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 1 to 8, Paul's reminding us of this life pleasing to God. We have to have a firm view of our sin so that we're not going to be slaves to it, that we'll not negotiate with it. We won't even let the thought of it come into our being. We want to live radical lives, not negotiating with sin, but living lives free from sin. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, he says, Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. You see, there's that word again, this walk of faith, peripateo, to keep step with Christ, to have the habit of our lives, Christ's likeness in all things. It's the worthy walk. And he says, just as you are doing so that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you again through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Here's one of the clues. Your sanctification, holiness, living a life that's honorable to him. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, that was a sign that they did not truly walk with the Lord. But the sign that we walk with the Lord is we will no longer be a sexually rampant group of people within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over those powerful passions. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. There's that word again. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his holy spirit to you. Why is it that we are to live lives in this world? that are holy because it is God who has called us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has called us. Now, one of the most powerful texts of Scripture on this partnering in worldly affairs is found in 2 Corinthians 6. And would you please turn there with me this morning? 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but I feel it is one of those pivotal scriptures. It's a hinge text for us. It's the way we are to live in this culture. Paul is calling to not have us be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he says this in verse 14. 
2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, do not be heterozygantes, unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does that mean? You know what the yoke was? It was a piece of wood. It was heavy. It weighed upon the backs of animals. Moses in the Pentateuch says, do not yoke an oxen and a donkey or an ass together. Why? They have different natures, different temperaments, different skills. They wouldn't be able to yoke those animals to plow a field. They would become unproductive, meaningless. It wouldn't be a fruitful thing for them to do that. Paul is borrowing from that image, and he says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't be yoked with non-believers. Now, this is not a call to isolation. We are to be in the world, but not of it. We are not to create our own separate Christian subculture. But we are to be yoked only with Christians. In a spiritual ministry or enterprise, it doesn't mean that you can't work for IBM or you can't go to work for Apple computers or you can't work with non-believers. That's not what the call is here. He's saying, though, you cannot be yoked, joined in an intimate alliance in a spiritual ministry or enterprise. This is a very key principle, beloved. For what partnership, he says here, has righteousness and lawlessness? As he unfolds it, what fellowship, what koinonia? Here it is, light and darkness. You can't yoke light and darkness together. It's impossible. He even becomes more dramatic. He says, what harmony, what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial, a New Testament expression for the evil one, for Satan himself. The apostle's using very strong imagery here. He's saying, being unequally yoked with a non-believer in a spiritual ministry or enterprise is as if you have joined Jesus and Satan together in a common ministry enterprise. Unthinkable. What harmony. It's a musical term. Symphony. What accord. What harmony. There would be nothing but the sharpest of inappropriate music there would be no harmony there or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever and then he brings it to worship what agreement has the temple of God with idols we are the temple of the living God as God has said I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God we're to walk for him but he's walking among us And they shall be my people, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Again, beloved, this is not a call to isolationism. This is not a call to set up our own Christian grocery stores and buy our own Christian gas from Christian gas companies and only buy cars from Ichthus Motors (laughs) and all kinds of... This is not a call to that kind of of isolationism no but what he's saying here in regards to the new life in Jesus Christ as he says back in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 7 don't partner with them 
There cannot be the intimacy of alliance and friendships. Listen, when you come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it means a new life. It means new friends, a new way, a new disposition, a new worldview, a new way and how and value system of how we are to live our lives. This is what he's saying. So he's saying, remember you were darkness, now you are light. Bottom line, you can't party with unsafe people on Saturday night and come worship the living and true God on Sunday morning and think you're paying homage to a holy God. Choices. Flee youthful lust, Paul says to a young Timothy. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, purity, and do it with those that call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's our partnership. That's our partnership. Remember your depravity. You were once darkness. Now you are light. Beloved, make tough choices in who you let into your home, on who you partner with, on who are the closest friendships of your life. Bad company corrupts good morals. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5. So as we see here, remember your depravity. Remember you were once in darkness, now you're light. Therefore, there must be some partnership only with believers. And it's in a spiritual ministry, ministry or enterprise. I just wanted one illustration came to mind. I had a ministry to people with AIDS many years ago. I wanted to share the gospel with them. I wanted to care for dying people. We were in Dallas, Texas doing an event and a dear sweet grandmother there, I sent posters and handbills. She's the only one that reached out to me and said, brother, I'll help promote an event for you. And I said, great. We found a church down there that sat several thousand people and we got a few artists together and we thought, what are we gonna do? The night of the event, we had over 7,000 people come out to that event to hear the good news of the gospel, many from the gay community. We saw several hundred respond to the call of Christ that night. It was wonderful. I got a call from a group that heads up the Ad Council's AIDS awareness campaign in Washington, D.C. They said, Steve, we have unlimited budgets, tens of millions of dollars. They said, we spent $250,000 in Dallas the same night that you guys had your event. He said, we had about 30 people come. You spent just a minuscule of money and we had over 7,000 people come. He said, uh, we want you to come join us. They flew me to Washington, I met with them in a very beautiful boardroom and they said, uh, we're here to give you the store. We want you to run this thing and be our spokesperson for us. After hearing their proposal, I said, can I have a moment to meet with my friends here and then we'll give you our answer. And they said, sure. I met with them because I wanted the shock of my answer with my friends to be absorbed before we said it before them. I said, I said, man, I have to turn this offer down. They said, Steve, nobody gets this. Nobody gets this kind of carte blanche thing here. You can say whatever you want to say and they'll back it. And I said, I can't be partnering with unbelievers in a spiritual ministry or enterprise. Because you see, beloved, there's one thing that's worse than HIV, and that's S-I-N. 
And there's only one cure for SIN, and that's in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were once darkness, now we're light. Number two this morning, recognize your duty. Notice this here in verses 8b to verse 10. I love this. He says, then, walk as children of light. There's the duty. There's the command. Walk as children of light. We love the light. When I was a child, I didn't like the darkness. I'd want a little nightlight on. I'd want the door cracked. I don't like the darkness. I love the light. And Paul's command is, if you were once in darkness and you're now light and you're not going to partner with the Gentiles, as it were, in those former ways of lust, walk as children of light. Again, that word means the habit of your life to be carried out every day. This is the daily activity. This isn't just for worship on Sunday. This is the daily activity wherever God has sovereignly placed you in the world, around Palm City, around Stewart, around Fort Pierce, around these different areas, St. Lucie, around Jupiter, whatever the area is that you live in, whatever job you have, whatever vocation you're called to, wherever you're finding your places of recreation, whatever beach you love to go hang out at, you are to walk in those circumstances as children of light. We cannot pick and do those things. We can't say Monday through Saturday's my time. I give God an hour and a half on Sunday morning. No, 24-7, 365, we live for him. And he's calling us to faithfulness. Walk as children of light. Now, in John chapter 12, the Lord Jesus Christ has laid this out for us even in gospel realities. Let's go there together. Walk as children of light. This is, this is how we are to live our lives. Jesus said to them, he says, the light is among you. He's speaking of himself for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. You see, this is a choice in our sanctification. It's a matter of obedience. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light... Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There it is. Walk in the light. This is just not a New Testament gospel reality. This is a reality that the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 5. He says similar language. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This isn't just a New Testament. This is an Old Testament. The people of God are to walk in that light, to honor him. A very familiar portion of Scripture to you this morning, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's perfectly holy. He's the object of our faith and obedience. If we say we have koinonia, fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. I'm a Christian. I make that known. 
I'm giving myself to public confession and testimony. I'm sharing the gospel. I've let my friends and my co-workers know I love Jesus Christ. But listen, if you walk in darkness, you lie and you do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that's not one another, you and I. That's fellowship with the Lord God. You have fellowship with Christ. No greater relationship, no greater intimacy, no greater fellowship. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. In the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. I don't know about you. I want to walk there. I want to walk there. I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of darkness. Even the thought and foolishness of sin. We all have it every day. Who shall free us, Paul says, from this body of death? Praise be to God. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Ed and I were talking this morning before service. This is the issue. We are new creations, but we live in unredeemed flesh, and there's a battle that goes on. We speak of it here frequently. And that's why we cannot lift a haughty eye to a dying world and say, how can you live this way? Not at all. Our message to a dying world is come to Jesus for salvation and have victory and forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. But to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we sometimes have to come alongside and say, don't go this way. It's a dark road. It's a hurtful road. Don't, don't carouse in the darkness thinking that it's okay. Don't frustrate grace. Because you see, we have a great light that has dawned upon our lives, and it's the light of the gospel in Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in a land of deep, dark, deep darkness on them has shone, has the light shone. You see, this is the coming prophetically of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 42 and verse 6, he says, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. Savior, Redeemer. He could have left us in the darkness of our sin, and he chose to deliver us. That is our Lord, our God. In Isaiah 49, in verse 6, he says the similar things. He says the prophet to Israel, depicting the servant of the Lord, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to where? The ends of the earth. What glory in the light of the gospel. And beloved, he's called us to take that light to the nations. Oh, what hope we have in the risen Savior. We once sat in darkness. That's where our home was. That's where we made our home. No wonder Jesus says in John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Would you go with me to the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 13. I love the book of Acts because this is the unfolding miracles of the Holy Spirit through the apostles as the church has been unfolded. You'll recognize this verse because we just said it out of Isaiah. Here is Paul, and he's giving the gospel. They're traveling to these various towns, and they're proclaiming Christ. Paul and Barnabas are together. And he says here in Acts chapter 13, and in verse 47... He says, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, then he quotes Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And notice this in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Salvation had come to them. And notice this, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The secret to evangelism is recognizing that God has sovereignly chosen a people for his own possession before the world was even created. But he has called us to go to those people so that they might inherit eternal life because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Man, that's the rejoicing in the glory of the gospel. That can happen through us, beloved. Acts chapter 26 and verse 18. Paul is recalling before the king his conversion. And he says this. This is one of the greatest mission verses, I think, in all of Scripture. Acts 26, 18. Listen to these words. What is the point of missions? What's the point of going into this world with the gospel? He says, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, speaking of Jesus Christ. Boy, there's the gospel. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says the, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, The God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But he says, for God has let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's the light. It's through Christ. It's through his gospel. Satan tries to blind the minds. And listen, there's one thing greater than the darkness of the enemy, and that's the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take it to this lost world. Preach it faithfully. Share it faithfully, knowing that he is sovereignly at work in the hearts to save those that he he has called from all eternity. Man, what a wonderful hope. In Romans 6, 1, this is what the apostle is saying here. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May genita, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a legitimate question. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, here it is, might walk in newness of life. Brother, it's too hard for me. I can't do it. I can't carry on. I don't know how to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how. Here's how. It's obedience to his truth. It's honoring and worshiping the Lord. It's receiving by faith that Christ was buried in death and rose victoriously from the dead. And therefore, we too have been raised in Christ Jesus. And beloved, if we have that resurrection hope of the newness of life, we can walk as new people. Victory over sin. Victory over the haunting sinfulness of sin in our life. We are new people. Can Christians sin? Yes. Can Christians sin grievously? Yes. Do they have to? No. Because we're new people. We're new people. Listen, it's not easy. It's tough. It's tough because we live in such a technically charged, technical charged environment with all of our smartphones. They don't seem so smart these days, but these smartphones. You can use them to read the word and to encourage others through Facebook and Twitter in their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can instruct and text and send emails and photographs and all kinds of wonderful things. You can use it for good, you can use it for evil. You see, this is where sin is more readily accessible to us today. I meet with, with men from time to time that say, Brother, I, I'm addicted to pornography. Turn off the phone. You may not be able to have one of these. If it's a cause for sin in your life, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Radical obedience. You say, brother, how will I keep in touch with people? Go back to a little flip phone. They can't receive pictures. You got to cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. You got to get radical in your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. I preach from an iPad most Sundays, as you know. I love it. I have over 10,000 books on my iPad. I love to study and to take God's word. But listen, if you're using it for sin, get rid of it. It's not worth it. Radical obedience. Take seriously, walk in newness of life, recognize your duty. And this is what he's saying here in Ephesians chapter 5. We have to get serious about our sanctification. If we are to walk as children of light, then the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. There it is. Good and right and true. That which is good, morally sound, right, righteous, acceptable to God and true. That which agrees with scripture. That's what it means. Moral soundness, righteousness through God, what agrees in Scripture. And he says, therefore, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Test it. As you're making your way through this earth, is that movie something I want to pump into my heart and mind? Is that TV show something that I'm going to feast on? Is that radio broadcast encouraging me to Christ-likeness? Or is it feeding the demons of my lower nature, as it were. 
the friendships that I have, the text messages that I send, that which occupies my thoughts, am I being renewed in my mind, transformed because I'm seeking the things that are above, or am I sitting and just feeding the sinfulness of my own flesh, and therefore are you surprised if you fall? Choices, good, right, and true. Number three this morning, reprove works of darkness. And number four is rejoice in your deliverance. We'll cover these next week. What have we seen so far, beloved, in our study of Ephesians so far? He's called us to a worthy walk, a worthy walk. It's noble, it's excellent, it's good. And it's, we've been made worthy to walk in this way because of the gospel. This isn't for boasting. It's because of the gospel of grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We deserved wrath, he gave us grace. We deserve justice, he gave us mercy. We deserve his eternal enmity against us and he gives us his unfailing love that no one can separate us from. So far in Ephesians, we've been called to walk in a manner worthy of the walk that's before us. We've been called to walk in newness of life. We've been called last week to walk in love, self-sacrificial love, undeserved, unmerited love, unfailing love. As Christ loved us, we're to love one another. And we're not to go back and walk as we did once in our former lives, before we met Jesus. So may I encourage you, when a football team or a baseball team or some athletic venture, they get blown out of the water in one of their, their battles, as it were, even at the professional level, they go back to the basics. They go back to the basics because something basic came undone. Here are the basics. Prayer every day. Husbands, wives, families, pray together. Pray. Secondly, you have to read the word. Crave it, Peter says. Read it. Hide God's word in your heart so that you will not sin against him. Treasure it deeply. Isn't David great in Psalm 19? He says, the word of God is more valuable to me than gold and much fine gold. It's the greatest wealth anyone could ever have. Even the greatest delicacy, it's better than honey in the honeycomb. Pray, read the word. But then we can't do this on our own. We need fellowship. This is the importance of local church. Fellowship together. We pray, we study the word, we, we fellowship together. We text each other during the week. We give each other a phone call. When someone's sick in the hospital, we go visit. When someone's not in worship, we call them and we say, hey, we, we love you, we miss you. Where were you today? And then we partner with other believers as we go into the world and we share the gospel. And maybe by God's sovereign grace, you get the privilege and the honor of leading someone to Christ. There's no greater joy. Basics. Prayer. Fellowship communion, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs that encourage our hearts and sing praise to the Lord. Study God's word. Put it in your hearts. 
His word's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We don't have to fall into the pitfalls of this life. He gives us that hope and that assurance. Walk. Walk. Christianity is not something you do. It's someone you are. It's a lifestyle. Oh, beloved, may we walk as children who once were in darkness, now are in light. And may we encourage one another to do what is good and right and true. Why? Because as we discern, that's what pleases the Lord. And our lives should be lived to his glory and to his pleasing. He's worthy of it. Amen? He's worthy of it. Let's pray together. Oh, dear Lord, this truth in your word is too much for us. We try to mine its depths and it's fathomless. I feel like we're just scratching the surface of these great realities. Lord, as we live in a world that is given over to chaos and all matters of public upheaval, we know what the solution is. Jesus is the answer. We know that the gospel is the only hope that can transform a human heart. We once were in darkness, now we're in light. May we be children of light, walking in that reality every day. Thank you for my brothers and sisters this morning. Thank you for the fellowship that we have because of Christ. Oh, Lord, may we walk in love, walk in newness of life. May we walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And, Lord, if for some reason something catches our eye, grabs our heart, woos our soul to something that is not pleasing to you, may we in that moment say yes to God and no to sin. And Lord, in those moments, send brothers and sisters our way to walk with us. A righteous man falls down seven times, but a righteous man gets up seven times. Repentance. And so, Father, we pray for our nation. Send revival. Send renewal. Send reformation. We pray for our heads of state that they'd come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We pray for the judges and the congressmen and senators and those running for office in an election cycle that they would be humbled to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That they would approach those wonderful callings because government has a high calling in Scripture, but may they approach it with humility because you set up in power who you want and you will take down who you want. Nebuchadnezzar learned that. So, Lord, we pray for righteousness to return to our land. None of this is a surprise to you these days. You are sovereign. Guard us from being apathetic. Forgive us for using your sovereignty as an excuse for our ineffectualness, for our spiritual laziness. Oh, Lord, may we be bold. The world is vocal about its sin. May we be more committed and vocal to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we live gospel strong this week. And as we 
guard the truth and guard the gospel, Lord. May we go to where Christ is not yet named and see people transformed. And we do this because before the throne right now, we have a high priest making intercession for us. Thank you that you're greater than all. We love you. We love you. And we love you because you first loved us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. In that blessed name we pray. Amen.